it, it genuinely feels like a gladiator's arena because you walk up with your horse the whole way through the crowd and they're five deep either side of the fence for three-eighths of a mile all the way up the back of the grandstand and then you get into the paddock uh, which is steeped in so much history and and every year i walk that walk with my first runner just to get a sense of where we are and what we're going to try and accomplish during the meet there and it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up that is trainer tom morley on the saratoga experience and this is talk racing to me i'm naomi tucker tom joins us later in the show providing his candid opinion on the revised triple crown the belmont distance change the reopening of the New York racing circuit and the upcoming Saratoga meet. Trust me when I say you want to stick around for his insight. Before I move on, subscribe to the In The Money Media Network on Apple Podcast. PTF, JK, Spencer, Matt. There is no shortage of horse racing insight and betting angles. And then there's me. But hey, you're here. You must be curious what I have to share. And probably you're here for the guest, but, you know, I'll take the compliment. Do get in touch with me if you have any great ideas for guests coming on this show. Naomi Tucker at life.nl. Tucker with two Ks. I've had some really great ideas and lots of people reach out to me, which is awesome. I've never had that before. So really, really like it. And I love hearing from you guys. So on the first segment of the show, in honor of the late Eclipse Award winning trainer Stephen DeMorrow, jockey turned analyst Richard Migliori recalls his favorite memories, as well as the profound impact Mr. DeMorrow has had on his life. And I don't want to spoil it too much. I'm going to let Mig tell you about learning to restrain his temper and how he got to ride next to his Eclipse Award winning boss, a trainer who has had a profound influence on many people's lives. Um, well, I was a 14-year-old kid when I walked into Steve's barn at Belmont Park. And I had galloped the horse uh, a few weeks earlier for Roger Lauren trying to get a job and um, was told I was too young. I, I gave them my real age. So I waited a few weeks and got working papers that said I was 16, went to uh, – Steve tomorrow, he put me on a horse. Great. You know, you have the job. And, um, you know, he asked me how old I was and I lied. I said I was 16. And, uh, you know, I got my temporary badge. They gave me a room at the track and, um, we started. But the interesting thing is he told me it's okay to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Try not to make the same mistake twice and never lie to me. And then our whole relationship set off basically on, predicated on a lie. Um, so, you know, flash forward a year and a half later, I wasn't quite 16 and he was getting ready to start me, but he thought I was 17. And I was, I was afraid because, you know, when you're a kid, your imagination kind of runs wild with you. And I, I thought, well, it's one thing to gallop horses underage, but if I start riding races underage, will I go to jail? I mean, I actually thought that. So I went into his office and I told him, you know, Mr. tomorrow I'm not, you know, I told him the story and he said, okay, I won't tell anybody if you don't. <laughs> so he was cool about it. Um, phenomenal man. Um, to think about his career in racing was a successful jockey. Um, his career was cut short. 
um, from a bad fall. Actually, in the bell name stakes, he broke his leg very badly, and he couldn't come back. And he turned to training, and he became uh, a Eclipse Award-winning trainer, a, a, a trainer of champions, um, uh, and a you know a very successful breeder, one of the founding fathers of the New York Breeding Program, um, a successful owner, and a, a, a very successful mentor. He, he mentored a lot of young people. Um, obviously myself included and gave us education and careers in, in, you know, this amazing game that we're all privileged to be a part of. And, um, just a, you know, a flood of emotions. I, you know, me and his son, Steven are very close. He, he's like my brother. And, um, you know, we had been speaking pretty steadily over the past few months and I, I knew Mr. DeMarro was ill and, um, but when he called me and told me that he had passed, it, it, it really impacted me. Um, you know, again, because of the, the flood of memories and going back to basically growing up in his barn. And I, I will say this, the entire DeMauro family not only opened their barn to me, but they opened their home and their hearts to me. They, they taught me how um, to conduct myself and, and basically helped me to become a man and I obviously, you know, groomed me to be a jockey, but more so to be a better person. And, you know, where I came from, it would have been easy to go a lot of different directions that might have not have been the best directions. And Mr. DeMauro and the entire DeMauro family uh, certainly shaped the course of my life. Now, when you heard that he passed away, I do think I had a sneak peek on your Twitter. You said you went out for a hike and it was quite sort of a reflective day. What came up when you were walking and thinking of all your time spent with Mr. DeMar? Well, just, you know, so many experiences and you know, things that I would have never had the opportunity to do um, that I was able to do in my life because of him and his belief in me. The fact that, you know, Naomi, you have to think about it. Here's a guy that was so highly accomplished when I met him, when I walked into his barn. He had already trained champions. He had already won his Eclipse Award. He was training for some of the most high-profile people in the game. Uh, when I walked to the barn, he still had Me Meadow Stable horses, Robert Sangster horses, um, you know, it, it, a, a plethora of high-profile owners. And for him to think enough of me to take me on it, it gave me instant credibility. And I, I think, you know, when you're young, you don't even really understand the enormity of some things. But as you get older and you realize, like, I was nobody. I was some kid out of Brooklyn – that you know had a dream, and here was this guy that was revered in the industry, highly successful in the industry, and took me on. And that it's just not common. That doesn't happen very often. And um, you know, I remember being a kid. There were times that I thought he was too hard on me, or I would get frustrated. Um, and looking back, it was always just about educating me, making me better, knowing that I could do better. And and to reach my full potential, um, and and also I when I got to him I was, you know I was kind of rough I, I I was, yeah had a bad temper you know my first reaction was to fight everybody, and he really tempered me and he really you know made me understand to think outside of myself and to see bigger picture you know it's so easy to get wrapped up in yourself and what you're dealing with in a moment. Um, uh, I had never flown on a plane in my life until um, me and uh, Mr. DeMauro and I flew to Florida for a, a steak. 
and I was scared. I, I those things are so big; they're not supposed to get off the ground, you know. And uh, him basically talking me through it and saying, "Listen, you know, you're going to fly a lot in your life. You got a lot of big things ahead of you." And 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 he was right. Within four or five months of that, I flew to Tokyo for the very first Japan Cup. I'm 16 years old. That's how much confidence and faith he had in me that. I, I went to ride the very first Japan Cup on a horse with a big chance. We wound up third, the very one, which is – they got stakes named in Maryland for the very one, Mrs. Pollinger on there. So to, you know, th- those kind of memories started flooding back. Um, the I had ridden about I think 11, 11 – 10 or 11 races. And, and you know back then they wanted you to ride a lot of races before you won your fifth race because then your apprenticeship starts. And so they wanted you to see races. They wanted you to, to you know, things almost slow down and you start to really see a race. So they put you on the long shots at first. And um, about my 12th mount, he said, all right, I'm going to put you on this filly and she'll win. She was three to five at the Meadowlands. And he wanted to know if I had a sport jacket, which I, I didn't. I didn't own a sport jacket. And he said, well, okay, I want you to go buy a sport jacket. Now, I used to clear $91 a week. I I made $100 a week. They took $9 out in taxes. And I went across the street on Hempstead Turnpike, and I bought a sport jacket for like $38, which was a a significant sum of money to me. I was a third of my paycheck. And I wore it over to the Meadowlands. Well, long story short, the Philly (laughs) stumbled at the break, got beat 20 lengths at three to five. And, uh, you know, so I, I didn't, you know, the sport jacket was a moot point because he wanted to bring me up to the press box afterwards. And and it was kind of quiet around the barn for a few days. And I was thinking I kind of blew my chance. And uh, he came to me a couple days later and said, OK, I'm going to put you on three horses Friday night at the Meadowlands. The first one will warm you up. The second one will win. The third one will bring you back to earth. And um, the first one won and paid a big price. Uh, just did win, got, got up and won by a nose. And then the second one that was supposed to win won. And the third one was third at like 70 to one. Um, and then that's my, my career kind of took off. And I started winning on horses that um, he didn't necessarily think had big chances. Uh, I won on a filly at the Meadowlands a couple nights later, paid $120. Then I won on a maiden that paid 65 So he kind of let me go on. And I won my first $100,000 stake race. And that's not such a big deal anymore, like $100,000 stake. But back then, there weren't that many of them. And I won my first $100,000 stake race um, as a 16-year-old in Saratoga for him, a horse he bred and Mrs. DeMauro, his wife, owned. So to think about that connection, that was you know fold at their farm, raised at their farm in, in Mill Neck, Long Island. And... You know, again, for him to have that much confidence, you know, back then you had a room full of guys, Angel Cordero, George Velasquez, Eddie Maple, Jacinto Vasquez, you know, on and on and on, um, all Hall of Famers that he could have went to because he's not getting a weight advantage. And I was his guy and he made no bones about it. You know how much a rider when a trainer believes in them that much? Uh, it, it, it was a gift that, um, I, again, honestly, I probably didn't recognize as much in those moments but looking back on it reflecting on it it's pretty incredible there are so many follow-up questions that i want to ask but i'm sort of going to start by going back to the beginning as you mentioned he was already very established he'd already won an eclipse award as outstanding trainer when you went to his barn what prompted you to go and seek an opportunity with him instead of all the other trainers and were you a little bit intimidated? Because I probably would be. 
you know, it's interesting. I wasn't intimidated just because I think I, I was that dumb. Like I just was that naive. Um, and like I said, I had gone to Roger Lauren first, um, at, at the suggestion of someone, I, you know, I'd been galloping horses out of the farm and, um, went to Roger Lauren and, um, which was a, a big deal too, because he was in his dad, Lucian's barn, which housed secretariat and, um, Eddie Sweat was the groom of the filly that I galloped. So here I am with, you know, the, these people that I watched on television as a, as a, a kid growing up. And, um, when I went to get my license at gate six, I wrote down everything that I, you know, that I was only 14. So he wanted to send me to his father in Holly Hill, South Carolina to work at the farm. And, I just got off the farm, got to Belmont, galloped the horse on the main track. The last thing I wanted to do, plus I'm a native New Yorker, was go to another farm in South Carolina when, like, I felt like I had arrived. I had made the show kind of, you know, my own, you know, kid, young mind. But so I waited a few weeks and I was able to get my hands on working papers. And I actually went to John Nehrud because he was very noted. Um, he was still training for Tartan Farm at the time for taking on kids and, and making them jockeys. And when I went to him, he said that he had already, he had an apprentice named Dan Foley and that I wouldn't really get an opportunity because I would be behind Dan Foley. And I think there was one other. Um, so I left his barn and I walked down to E.I. Kelly's barn and E.I. Kelly was right next to Steve DeMauro's barn. And, and Mr. Kelly said, listen, I don't take on kids. Um, but, Steve tomorrow, he, you know, he may, you want, might want to check with him. And, and honestly, that's how I wound up at Steve's barn. And I walked in and he did have an apprentice in front of me, uh, Gordon Whitaker, who has two sons that ride in the Maryland, uh, Charlestown circuit. Um, I think it's Grant and maybe Brandon Whitaker. So Gordon Whitaker was in front of me. He was four or five years older than me. And, but I took the job and it was great. I, I, I loved living at the track. I lived there at the barn. I, I loved, you know, the, the, the atmosphere. I loved everything about it. And I loved the way our barn was structured was really like a family. And, and, and that had a lot to do with Mr. DeMauro. Um, you know, just everybody looked out for each other. We used to eat together. We had a day watch lady that, um, had jockeys in her family. So when I was getting ready to ride my first race, she was the one who told me I had to go buy at least six pairs of underwear and six um, pairs of specific kind of socks to put in the jockey's room. And then when I bought them, she embroidered my name into them so that they wouldn't get lost in the, in the jockey laundry. It was that kind of atmosphere. And then even when I went to ride my first race, the whole barn came up to the paddock at Belmont because I rode my first race at Belmont. Um, you know, and I, I was like their kid, you know, and, and it was, it was definitely like a family, but Mr. DeMauro fostered that atmosphere and he's the one who created that. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how I wound up at Mr. DeMauro's. Um, it was interesting too, like looking back, he, he never basically said, this is how you do something and was very specific about how he taught you. He allowed you the ability to fail, to try. And if it didn't work, you know, to, to readjust. And the only thing that I, he would make me do every day before I was done work, I would have to go in the office and we would talk about the horses and talk about how different horses specifically worked or galloped or what I thought, you know, if he was looking at spots for horses, do you think this filly would be better off going short or long? Or, you know, what do you think if we try this filly on the turf, that kind of thing. And even that, looking back on it, I think he, he, 
didn't want my input as much as he was teaching me and including me in the process that I was part of the team. And I, I think it helped me develop an informed opinion and made me think about these things where a lot of jockeys don't really think that way. He instilled that in me. And again, looking back, I think it was definitely more for me than for him. Um, then when I started riding, you know, he, he was very specific about how he wanted me to handle myself, how he wanted me to conduct myself. And again, I, I, when I got to him, I was, you know, definitely had a lot of rough edges. You know, I, I was a kid from Brooklyn with four brothers, um, and basically on my own from that point on. And he went out of his way to make sure that I was going to be a gentleman and I was going to be a good person as much as a good rider. And, and honestly, more than anything else, I, 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 that's a debt of gratitude I can never repay. Cause looking back on it, I, I really it would have been easy for me to, to make a wrong move or a wrong turn. And he wasn't going to have that. Um, and you know, even, even so much, if I did have an issue, he, he'd sit me down. You know, I couldn't get on horses for a week and I'd hot walk and, and that was like the worst thing at that time. All you wanted to do was get on horses. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and like I said, Stephen and I became his son, um, had become so close that actually when I moved off the track, the first apartment I ever got, me and Stephen shared the apartment. I was 16 years old. It was, you know, five minutes from Belmont. Um, uh, met my wife there. I mean, so you think about the impact of, you know, working for Mr. Tomorrow. My wife, the love of my life, my children. So everything good stemmed from my relationship with him and horses and that barn, Barn 46 at, at Belmont Park. Um, and, and even to that end, you know, Mr. Tomorrow um, helped a lot of people. But my wife became his assistant trainer back in a day when there weren't very many women assistant trainers. And she wound up with the second division up in Saratoga training all the two-year-olds. Um he, you know, he, Stephen and I were talking a lot the day um, after he passed, and he said one of his dad's gifts was recognizing talent and giving people an opportunity that deserved it. And I, I think he said it perfectly because he saw something in me. He saw something in my wife, Dominic Galusio. You know, when he started training, he he helped him get get started. So many people, and I'm gonna you know, honestly be afraid I'm going to leave somebody out. So I'm not going to start, you know, just naming name after name, but, um, huge impact, uh, on certainly my life, but many other lives as well. You already briefly mentioned it. You said you had a temper sometimes, and I was just wondering how did he guide you to harness that some form of anger or energy that you have. You said you weren't allowed to get on horses if you had done something that he didn't approve of. Yeah, no, if I kind of really blew it and not, and not like a horse getting away from me or messing up a work, you know, just letting my temper get the best of me or not reacting the proper way in a particular situation. I, I got into a fight with a groom one day, um, you know, actual fist fight, you know, and, um, he pulled me up, had to go in the office with him, basically read me the riot act, told me that if I was going to have a future in this game, I, I couldn't conduct myself that way. And then for the next week, I walked horses. And he didn't say, like, after a week, you're going to be back galloping horses. I just hot walked for the next week, not knowing what was going to happen next. 
And after a week, I came out one day from my room and I was on the set list again. And, you know, I would have had been ridiculously hard headed if I didn't get the message that if you, you know, there's cause and effect. If I do conduct myself that way, well, then I'm not going to get to do the thing that I love to do most. So (laughs) obviously I'm not going to do that again. Um, you know, it, it was that kind of thing. Um, even when I started riding and, and he really mapped out a plan. He believed I could win the Eclipse Award as an apprentice jockey. But he even mapped it out so that I would have pretty much a full year with my apprentice allowance so that he didn't want me to win my fifth race too early in the season. So I won my fifth race like November 27. So that, that gives me basically 11 months of 1981 as an apprentice to build up my statistics to win the Eclipse Award, which is exactly what happened. But he mapped that out. He planned that. And he would tell me when the next spring there was a lot of traveling involved. I would I would ride every day in New York and we used to race six days a week. And two or three days a week at the least, I was night racing someplace. So in the spring, it was Atlantic City. Um, in the summer, um, from Saratoga several times, I went to Charlestown. Um, in the fall, it was Meadowlands every night. Meadowlands raced five nights a week then. So I was racing basically – six days, five nights a week. And he told me early on, you're going to go into these jockeys rooms and a lot of guys aren't going to like you because they feel like you're coming in there to take their money. I don't want you to react. I don't want you to get in fights. I don't want you to do anything but what you're there to do. And that's ride and concentrate on riding. Let them fumble over themselves worrying about you. You just do what you're there to do. And, um, you know, it was great advice because there were always somebody trying to test you um, or get into your head or, and I, I did one night at, at Atlantic city, um, got into it with somebody because I just couldn't take it anymore. And next day in the office, we had to talk about it. I explained what happened and he said, okay, he says, you let them know you can handle yourself now, leave it behind, let it go. And I didn't really have very much problems after that, but he, again, he was always aware of it because he had that background as a jockey. And and he understood the, the psychological makeup of it. He understood how to go forward and conduct yourself. Um, again, I, to, I, I can't overstate the impact he had on my life. And, and you know, the obvious is the riding and, and, and being a jockey. And I was very fortunate to have the career I had. But more the, the human being and, and how to conduct myself. And, and that was something that I, I, I absolutely needed guidance with. For the listeners that don't know, Richard won the Eclipse Award, Apprentice Eclipse Award in 1981. Was that something that you thought you could do or did he instill that confidence in you that you were more than capable of winning the Eclipse Award? Well, when I first started riding, and certainly when I first went to work for him, I didn't even know what an Eclipse Award was. I I didn't know that they gave out awards at the end of the year for champion jockey, champion apprentice. And the first time I heard about it was was Mr. DeMauro talking to me about it and telling me this is what you can do. And and you you have an opportunity. You have the ability. Um, I I, I, Honestly, that was was foreign to me until – and then once he said it and I started – you know, doing some good, um, it definitely became an obsession. It was something that I wanted because he had instilled this idea in my, in my head that I could do it. Um, but until he brought it up, I didn't even know what it was. Um, 
And then the, the funny thing is, is I speak for a living now, right? I, I in television and this and that. Well, when I won the Eclipse Award, I was so scared going to receive my Eclipse Award and speak in front of people. And um, my wife, Carmela, was my girlfriend. And I didn't even have a driver's license yet. I was too young to have a driver's license. And she drove me to the Eclipse Awards at the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami. And I had never seen a place like this in my life either. It was like, oh, my God, this is crazy how beautiful and glitzy it was. And and I had spoke to her the entire way to the awards that, you know, what my speech, because I didn't want to get up there with like notes. So I get up there and I figured I'd just look at her and talk through it. She was sitting with Mr. and Mrs. DeMauro and my agent and and the lights were so bright, I couldn't see two feet in front of me. So now I can't see her and I'm completely blanking out in front of the entire industry. And the one thing I was able was to thank Mr. DeMauro and uh, completely forgot my agent, which I felt horrible. But, but I was, I, I was like a deer in headlights and I, I sure wish I had a do over. Like if I knew then what I know now, I w- it would have been a much better speech. <laughs> Well, you are very good at speaking on television. And I was praising you earlier about your ability to explain things from a jockey's point of view. And I, in particular, love learning from you on that perspective. And Mr. DeMar really sounds like a phenomenal character. So were there any memories or moments that you think were particularly significant of him being him or even amusing? Um, you, you know, what... Uh, just going through the like Rolodex of, of memories and different things was um, he never would get on the pony. Uh, once he his career was done riding because of how badly he broke his leg, he never rode again. And we had a really bad acting horse that was actually on the Kentucky Derby Trail that I used to get on. And he would get on the pony every day at Hialeah and ride out with me and help me, you know, get this horse around there. And Everybody was a buzz about like Steve. Steve's on a horse. Steve's on a horse, and it, it was a big deal for me because, I, you know, now I'm getting, you know, the opportunity to ride next to my boss and him basically explaining some things and showing me some things. And and again, this really bad acting horse that um, had so much ability, but God, he was his own worst enemy. And and the only reason I probably got along with him was I was probably 95 pounds at the time, and and couldn't fight with him so he at least tolerated me um but i you know that that was that was huge um and you know you think about what he did with wajiba um last crop of bold rulers they paid a, a record sum at the time six hundred thousand for him at the sale and mr demoro put that deal together at the sales pavilion uh zenya yoshida and harold snyder which was a longtime customer and he had the vision that this young horse is going to be worth every penny, if not more. And when he wound up being the champion three-year-old, um, he beat Forgo. He won the Marble Cup, um, and he was syndicated for uh, somewhere around six million dollars. Um, someone asked Mister Demaro, "Well, that six hundred thousand seems like a bargain." And Mister Demaro said, "I always thought it was a bargain." And he really did. He had that vision. And you think about how many high-priced horses are duds. They just don't pan out. Um, the fact that he took the highest price yearling to date at that time from the last crop and actually made him a champion. Um, I, I always thought that that was never 
revered as much or, or never got the notoriety it really deserved. Um, you know, pretty, pretty phenomenal. Um, and then he had Dealey Precious the same year was a champion, two-year-old filly. And I came along and I wound up riding Dealey Precious's babies for Mr. DeMauro. So, um, you know, pr- pretty full circle. Um, I will give you one experience. Um, a couple summers ago, he came up to Saratoga with Mrs. DeMauro, his daughters, Joanne and Catherine. Stephen, who's now the steward at Gulfstream, was still training. And he couldn't get there from Monmouth. And Carmela came up and two of my children and we all had dinner. And during the dinner, you know, I, I, I had an opportunity to really express my gratitude for um, basically the way he shaped my life and, and the person and, and the career he helped me have or the person I became and the career I had. And he said to me, he goes, I, I'm really, really proud of you. Um you had an amazing career. I, I would never have dreamed it would have been as good as it was. I knew you were good, but I'm really proud of you because I'm happy you don't ride anymore because I was just didn't want to see you get hurt anymore. Because, and you're really good at TV. I love listening to you. So it was a really, really sweet, kind of beautiful moment. That, and that was the last time I saw him. That you know, We did speak one more time on the phone, but that was the last time I saw him. And um it was pretty neat, you know, to be there with Carmela. And, and again, Carmela is like a part of their family as well. And then with our, two of our children as well, um, it was too bad Stephen couldn't make it that night. But it, it was it was a pretty special evening. Which year did you say that was? Or when was that again? <laughs> I think it was probably it would be three summers ago now, so 2017. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it was 2017. But um, – you know, again, back when New York breads weren't, you know, as fashionable or as good as they are, Mr. DeMar was breeding them and turning them out and winning with them. Um, and he truly was one of the first real champions of the New York Thoroughbred breeding program. Um, he said winning my first $100,000 stake on a colt named Recipitor's Hope. And it was a sloppy day in Saratoga. He paid like $50. And Mrs. DeMauro came down and she was all dressed so nice and had these white shoes on. And they didn't have a winning circle in Saratoga back then. It was just a chalk mark on the racetrack, like a, a chalk circle. And Mrs. DeMauro jumped into about a, a foot of mud to get a hold of a Sipiter's Hope. I mean, it was, it was pandemonium. We were actually looking at some of the photos from it the, the other night. And there was a lot of talk going into the Saratoga meet if I could break Steve Cawthon's money record before the end of the meet. It, it was for the entire 12 months of the apprenticeship, but you know everybody thought it would be really cool if I could do it. And I didn't think I could because you know the purses weren't huge. And when I won that $100,000 stake, though, that put me like right on it. And then three days later, I broke it in Saratoga because of that that race more than anything else. Um, you know, Maidens were running for 15000 then. And most of the stakes were 50. Um, and I mean, the Whitney was a $100,000 race. So, you know, to win a $100,000 race was a huge deal with a homebred for your boss. I mean, the whole thing was pretty phenomenal. Well, just for everyone that doesn't know, that 1975 was quite the banner year for Mr. DeMauro because he had, like you mentioned, Dilly Pressure, who was a champion two-year-old filly, with Gima was a champion three-year-old male horse. And I just double-checked it. He was then, as you mentioned, syndicated for a world record price then of $7.2 million uh, with Leslie Combs at Spendthrift Farm is where he stood. And if you, it says here, if you 
take that value, inflation adjusted, that would now be about 34.2 million American dollars. So that was quite the price. And I mean, Richie, I think you've told me so many wonderful stories. And I'm just going to slightly divert into a different topic before I let you get on with your day, because you were mentioning the effect you had on the New York racing scene. And obviously, you've grown up on the New York racing scene. And we were discussing this before, how much it means to you. And of course, they're going to come back racing again on the 3rd of June. Have you had any chance to speak to some of the trainers up there? How do you feel it has developed and how is sort of the atmosphere there right now? Well, I think everybody's a little bit on edge. You know, it's, it's last racing day was March 15th. Um, so, you know, you've got a lot of people. I mean, the, this game is about producing and winning and, and that's how you sustain yourself. So, you know, I, I have several trainers that are friends that, you know, it's been hard hanging on to all their horses because some of the owners are like, well, we're not racing. I'm sending them, you know, to the farm or I'm going to try to send them someplace where they are racing. Um, so I think everybody's a little bit on edge, kind of ready to get back to it. I think now that there's a set date, there's a set, you know, sense of relief and people are really pointing towards it. Um, I think we'll see full fields for a little while because you have a lot of horses sitting on ready. Um, but, you know, certainly it's it's just been crazy unprecedented times for the entire world. Um, and it'll be nice to get back to some sense of normalcy. I'd say you have to take to social media channels and start pointing us towards all those winners in the full fields, Make. <laughs> well, well, we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm not as good as that as some of my colleagues. I, I, I'm better talking about races after they're on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the beauty of hindsight, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, mate, thank you so much for your insight, your time. I very much feel like I've learned so much about the late Stephen DeMauro. He seems like a phenomenal character. And I do think he's rubbed off on you a little bit. You are very good at motivating other people and being very supportive and I feel like that's something that comes from everything you told me about him that he really did that as well so yeah thank you so much and I really enjoyed it thank you I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to talk about Mr. DeMar Mr. DeMar was by the sounds of it a very special man indeed well next up I caught up with group one winning trainer Tom Morley as he was wrapping up his day there's a bit of noise throughout the interview but uh, keep in mind, he has got a quarantine family at home on Long Island who are rearing to get back to the real world again, like we all are, and hence are healthy and happily present in the background. Yeah, we're all back home um, and um, sun's shining. I've just got back from the barn. I walked the turf courses this afternoon. They look to be in outstanding condition to start racing next week here in New York. So I'm excited to get back at it. That is great news. I actually went and walked the turf again today as well. And it just looks so good. We're, we're all anxious to get started as well. Well, hopefully you guys get a date soon. I hope so too. It's a day by day thing, but we're they're positive. They're really planning on getting going this weekend. It's just now, are we allowed to run? I happened to get a peek at the um, overnight. It looks like the waiver claiming will be very interesting for everyone to navigate through because the first, I think, the first race on your on the overnight is a maiden ten where not a single horse is running for the tag. Yep, they've got. I mean, I understand why they've implemented that rule, but it's going to be interesting for sure. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I, look, it's a, it's a, I think it's, I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, we're going to have the same thing here in New York. Um, you know, a lot of people have sat on horses for plenty of time now, and if, if you know, it's it's only one start, and um, you get a chance to to run for some purse money before you have to risk losing your horse again. Absolutely, especially as you mentioned, people have been keeping their horses in training for a fair few months without being able to get any money back. So it'd be quite a shame for them to then lose them after one run. Yeah, and look, we've got a number of horses in the barn who um, were claimed in the two weeks leading up to the stop of racing. So, you know, if, if you've claimed a horse for 40,000 on the 1st of March and it's now the 1st of June, um, you know, you're, 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 you're looking at three months of bills on, on that horse as well. Um, and there might not be a race in the first week or two of the book for you. So you're probably looking at, um, you know, you're looking at a horse who's you're into for fifty five, sixty thousand $60,000 at that point. Well, it's put a lot of strain on everyone, on the business, uh, I mean, on the trainers, I was going to call you a business owner, which you are, effectively, yeah. and and on the owners just to keep paying their way and keep making the ends meet. But that's something we'll definitely dive into. Uh, I want to start with you talking about the fact that the greater New York City area had the biggest outbreak of COVID-19 in the United States. It was deemed to be the epicenter. Uh, inevitably, it made its way into the Belmont Park backstretch. And I'm hoping you might be able to give me some form of a timeline of how things developed for you guys throughout these last few months. Sort of when did you hear that you guys were going to cease racing and then how did it go from there? Yeah, the the, the ceasing of racing happened very quickly. Um, we literally had drawn, um, I think it was for the Saturday card, um, and it was announced two hours after the overnight came out that um, that we cancelled racing. Being a um, being a typical racehorse trainer, I didn't even pull up the PPs for my three entries that day that I thought were would all be very very live because I couldn't stomach the fact that um, I didn't want to see if I if I put my horses in really good spots and wasn't going to get to run them, but. Um, you know, New York snowballed very, very quickly. Um, we went from having the leaders of the city and the state telling us that COVID-19 offered very little threat to the people of New York to going into complete shutdown um, in, a, in a matter of days. And, and it, we, we, we understood that the backstretch of Belmont was likely to be a very, very difficult place to manage and contain because the, the grooms and the hot walkers and the staff who live on site, although it's brand new dormitories across the entire backstretch and they are beautifully done, at the end of the day, they are the equivalent of a sort of prep school, um, nursing home, um, you know, you're sharing corridors, you're sharing bathrooms, um, uh, you're sharing balconies, uh, you're sharing entrance doorways, etc. So we realized that we had to be very, very quick and very vigilant about the whole thing. And I cannot speak highly enough for the team at NYTHA and the best backstretch clinic. Um, Chaplain Umberto Chavez, Joe Applebaum, uh, and Will, who's the CEO of, N of NYTHA, um, put a series of protocols into place. Uh, Juan Dominguez and Tim Kelly, who um, are the equine safety stewards, implemented 
um, the racetrack protocols and the guys on the backside have done the most phenomenal job. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's a testament to how seriously they took it and how quickly they jumped on it that we, um, you know, the number of hospitalizations of the 800 people who live on the backside at Belmont was kept in the teens. Um, and they had a set of quarantine dormitories set up the day after we, we stopped racing. And, and it's been very, very scary back there. It's been very nerve wracking for a lot of people. Uh, but I can't speak highly enough for, for the job that Joe and Will and Umberto have done uh, trying to lead us through what has been an extremely difficult time. What was the atmosphere like on the back stretch? I can imagine people being anxious and tense with each other. Yeah, it was um, it was difficult because a large number of our workforce, obviously Hispanic, and 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 several and and a, and a lot of them don't speak particularly good English. Um, so trying to get the protocols in place as quickly as possible without scaring people too much was was probably the first challenge that we had to overcome and making people understand that normally when you're sick on and you live on the backside you you um go to the the backstretch clinic but that so that happened on the first day and obviously the guy went into the clinic the clinic then had to be closed for two days totally cleaned and disinfected so we had to try and get everybody to understand that if they didn't feel well or they had a fever or a cough, they needed to stay in their room and contact either their trainer or the backstretch clinic, and then the, their case would be handled from there. Um, a huge amount of uncertainty um, in, I think that a number of people were a little bit hesitant um, possibly to, to truly believe that this was potentially as bad as it was going to be. Um, and it was it, for a, certainly for a few days, it was a very, very unnerving place to be. Um, and as a business owner and a, and a CEO of you, you are trying to navigate your way through understanding it as best you can yourself and guide your staff and, and family members through it um, and, and make sure that we try to come out the other side as unscathed as possible. Talking about looking after your staff, unfortunately, you had one of your own longtime staff members, Martin Zapata, is that how I say that correctly? Yeah. Losing his life to the effects of the coronavirus really hitting close to home. I mean, how how was that like for you? That must have been a horrific experience for you, his family, and, and everyone involved. So Martin had worked for me for a number of years. Um, and he was um, he was one of the very first cases at Belmont. Um, and he was hospitalized and was on a ventilator for seven days and um, sadly lost his life. And it was a very, very difficult thing to comprehend because yes, he was 63 years old, but he never missed a day during, due to ill health. Um, was constantly had a smile on his face. And to have somebody taken from you who 
72 hours beforehand was absolutely fine. It was extremely tough to handle. Um, and I think, sadly, it was a huge realization to the rest of the backstretch community of how incredibly serious this was. Um, because as it played out, we realized that those that were elderly and had underlying health issues were most vulnerable to this virus. And yet Martin lost his life and was appeared to be, and um, there have been no reports otherwise to say that he was a totally hu normal, healthy human being. Um, it was very... It, it 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 remains very tough that we haven't been able to say goodbye. Um, we haven't been able to have a memorial. We haven't been able to do anything to say goodbye to him. Um, and as and when we are allowed, we will endeavour to do that. But at the time, it was a very very it was incredibly shocking to all of us that um, that firstly he was hospitalised, but then secondly that he lost his life. I do believe that not being able to give someone a proper funeral and, like you mentioned, actually say goodbye makes it so much worse. I hear your little girls in the background. I was going to ask you, what was this time period like for you? You have just welcomed a beautiful little girl, Willow, into your family, yet you can't stay inside and quarantine because you had a business to run and, and people to look after. Yeah, it was um, it was particularly tough on the girls and on Maggie because they were housebound for for basically seven eight weeks, um, and we had have just welcomed Willow into the world, our second daughter. And as as Maggie and I discussed the other day, it you know it was a very different start to life for Willow than it was for Grace. Um, Grace at this age had gone from being born in New York to traveling all the way to Louisiana. Um, she'd been to three Mardi Gras parades, countless restaurants, etc., etc. And poor Willow has, has been effectively locked in the house for the first three months of her life. Um, so it was, you know, Grace, Grace especially is at the age that she was going to school and coming to the barn and riding her pony and living as much of an outdoor life as we could afford while living on Long Island. So it was very tough on, on them doing that. I can imagine. Well, let's start looking ahead and possibly something more positive or well, definitely more positive. It's now a revised meeting, the Belmont track will reopen on the 3rd of June and run a 25-day meet until July 12th. What are your initial thoughts on the schedule and have you got any horses that you're pointing at some of the stakes races? Um, opening week, uh, the opening week we'll be running uh, Gypsy Janie in the six furlong listed Philly Sprint, the Harmony Lodge. Um, nominations just came out for that race uh, and it's, as you can expect, Probably for the first three months, there will be a, there'll be an enormous concentration of good horses in these stakes. Uh, we've seen it at Churchill Downs. We're seeing it again this week down there. Um, and there is a chance that uh, Xanthique will take her place in the Intercontinental on the opening Saturday, 
Um, she's an extremely talented intermischief filly um, who won three of her five starts for us last year and was stakes placed in Saratoga. Um, and so I'm looking forward to, I'm just looking forward to getting a lot of horses back on the racetrack as well. Um, I felt we made a couple of really good claims just before we stopped racing. I'm looking forward to seeing um, California Knight and the Caretaker. Um, and, and there are two or three of the three-year-olds have begun to show their hand to be potentially nice horses. Um, I like the filly Bella Rose, who's a Bellamy Road filly. Uh, she's a New York bred who won an open company maiden at the back end of last year, Aqueduct on the grass on her second start. Um, and she could potentially be a stallion series filly going forward. Um, and I'm just excited to get back racing at the end of the day. It's, um, you know, when, when you do what I do for a living and you have that taken away for, for two months, then it, um, you know, it, it can be extremely mentally taxing, um, almost more so just tra training horses and you're not sure what you're training them for. So um, we've got, I think we've got 14 horses to en enter opening week. Um, hopefully they all get in. I That's going to be the next problem is <laughs> getting included horses on the AEs and irate owners about that. Um, so that's the next round of telephone calls that I'm not looking forward to at all. Um, but, you know, I think that, the condition book is out. It's been, it's a relatively straightforward book, but I think you'll see a lot of extra races being thrown up as well, uh, especially to accommodate a large number of the turf runners. Um, I, you know, I'm in the position where I turned out a lot of turf horses in November last year with a view that they'd be back running in April and they've been ready to go for over two months now. So we're, we're you know, hopefully we're very live in a lot of those races. And you mentioned briefly your owners how have they dealt with all of this have you been in frequent contact with them and how has this all affected them yeah they've been wonderful actually um you know i'm very very lucky with the group of clients that i've got um they have been very timely with their paying of their bills which is so important at this stage because you're just trying to keep the business going you're trying to keep your staff paid um and the feed man paid um, to make sure that the horses, you know, that are in are, are being cared for to the absolute top notch. And it's very difficult for the owners when they don't have a target to aim for. Um, you know, a lot of them don't not just love the racing, but they love coming to the track to see their horses. And they, they still can't do that now. They won't be allowed to do that through the Belmont meet. And it's going to be, you know, that's going to be very tough on them, especially the local owners, who are going to have to sit and watch their horse on TV when it might be running five miles down the road. Um, communication, you know, we, we try and pride ourselves on our communication anyway. Um, as my wife says, I, on the telephone far more than I talk to her. Um, and you're just trying to bolster that with vid video footage of the horses and pictures, um, you know, trying to keep owners involved as much as possible with, with what's going on with their horses. With them not being able to attend the races and see their horses run, as well as just in general, the whole negative effect on the economy that this pandemic has already had and will probably for the foreseeable future continue to have. Do you think that there will be certain owners that say, you know what, I'm going to drop my horse in for a claim or I'm going to privately sell them, I'm, I'm getting out of this? 
Uh, yeah, no doubt we're going to see some extremely competitive claiming racing. Um, you know, at this juncture, people need to keep the cash flow going. Um, horses are a very expensive hobby to have, and at this point, you 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 you're bound to see some um, some very very um, aggressive moves in claiming races with horses. Um, you know, the two-year-olds have had a the guys who can sign two-year-olds have had a rotten time of it as well. We're all heading off down to OBS tune, but um, normally this is the tail end of the two-year-old sales, and, and we're, so we're only just getting going on that front. And you're going to see a trickle-down effect through everywhere. I mean, we were looking at a, at a, a significantly reduced purse structure, but nowhere near as badly as other other states are going to be. Um, you know, I can't see Pennsylvania racing opening until the casino opens again because it's such a massive percentage of their purse structure. So you feel for the horsemen there who really don't know what their future, where their future lies at the moment. Two-year-olds, you ha- must have a few in your barn already, but as you mentioned, with the sales not having gone up yet, you have, I'm assuming the majority of people have reduced number of two-year-olds at present. And how do you see that sort of continuing and affecting the the start for a lot of these youngsters? Yeah, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because a huge amount of these, t- you know, we've got our first two-year-old races on the 5th and 6th of June. Um, and yet... On the 7th of June, I'm going down to OBS June, where there are 1,400 two-year-olds catalogued to be sold. So these guys haven't got homes yet, let alone got ready for the races. Um, We have, I think, seven two-year-olds in already. Um, And we, you know, we will be live in in some of the early two-year-old races. I I have a New York bred who was ready to run in the race in April. So uh, it's been tough on him trying to keep the lid lid on him until june but um you know the two-year-old consigners i i would imagine are going to be desperate to sell their horses in june because they're going to need some cash flow um going forward that you know it, at the end of the day it's a business and if they don't if they don't sell these horses then they're not going to have the money to go back to the yearling markets next year you said you have seven currently and is that sort of a normal number for you this time of year yeah, we'd normally have about seven or eight in by now. Um, and then, um, you know, that number pr- probably, we'll, we'll have about 22-year-olds in total this year. Um, and and it's nice having what I would say is two-thirds of the group are, 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 that we already have are in. Um, then we, But normally by now, we would have had the OBS April sale. We would have had the Gulfstream the Gulfstream Fezzik Tipton sale and the um, the Timonium sale, and we're, so you know we're, those are three three markets that we've missed out on so far. Um, so we're going to be going down to June and looking to buy some two year olds there. Which one of your two year olds are you most looking forward to at the moment? Which one will be hitting first time out? There's a Leoban two year old New York bred called Tom's Choice, um, who should run well first time out. Um, then two horses that have come in more recently. Um, there's a flatter colt called Chambo, who um, Connor Foley bought for a new syndicate called West Pacer Racing. He's a colt who's shown some promise. Um, a hard-spun homebred of George and Stephanie Autry, who's so a very backward type of horse, but he. Everything's in the right place. He just looks he looks like a three-year-old already, and, and that's always a bit daunting on the 1st of June. 
Um, you know, he weighs more than a lot of my three-year-olds already. And, and that's, you know, that it means I, I know I've got plenty to work with going forward. Um, and a intermiss chief cult called Paul Fury came in this morning. He's a horse that we purchased at the Keeneland September yearling sale. Uh, he's been in training at the Kentucky Thoroughbred Training Center with Wayne Mackey um, and has been doing very nicely. And he looks like he's grown and filled out a lot since I last saw him. We'll have to keep an eye out for these youngsters. And I'm glad you already mentioned some of the sales because I was going through your website and on one of your blogs, you address the effect the pandemic will have on mares, bread, full, size, full crop sizes, weaning and yielding sales. And during a normal year, it's safe to say that we'd be, like you mentioned, well into the two-year-old sales and everyone's getting ready for the yearling sales later on this year or they're starting to look at their yearlings and prep them. How do you emphasize the year preceding and what can we do to sort of help each other out because we're all in this? It's going to be very scary going forward this. Um, talking to a number of breeders in Kentucky and in New York, a lot of mares were not bred this year who were booked to stallions um, and they have, in certain areas, they found it extremely difficult to get the vets to the farms because they have to travel so much between farms to check mares before they go to the shed. Uh, and a huge amount of breedings were missed during the months of April and May uh, because of that. So we're going to see, I'm sure, a dramatically decreased foal crop uh, next year again, which was a shrinking foal crop as it was anyway. Um, and that's going to make, um, you know, the number of horses that are available for purchase at the sales is probably going to be, might decline significantly. There is also the chance, of course, that people who normally breed to race decide to sell their horses. And maybe that will bolster the numbers. But at the end of the day, I cannot imagine that we won't be seeing a dramatically decreased um, number of young horses available through the, through the next few years. We'll definitely see this ripple through for the years to come. And as we're looking at this year, it being such a strange year as it is, of course, I want your opinion on the alteration in distance for the Belmont Stakes from nine furlong, uh, from 12 to nine furlongs, as well as its place as the first race of an altered triple crown. And I do believe that you had quite an opinion on it and were saying, if Bafford's not going, I'm going to send all my horses there. This was, of course, before the distance was changed. Yeah, I was a bit of tongue-in-cheek on that front. <laughs> I'm not sure that I've got a single three-year-old in my barn who's... Um, who'd be capable of, of, um, of running in the Belmont, uh, sadly, this year. But, you know, it, it, the, the industry as a whole has been put in a very difficult position here. Do I like the fact that the Belmont is going to be run at a mile and an eighth out of a shoot? Um, no. Uh, is it the right thing to do? Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I also had a tongue-in-cheek thing on, on Twitter where somebody said it would be ridiculous to ask all these horses to run a mile and a half um, when they haven't been prepping to do it. And you've got to remember that Lamtara won the, the derby in England having not run as a three-year-old. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it, it is perfectly possible. And, and these horses have been running in prep races at a mile and an eighth and a mile and three sixteenths. Uh, but dirt's a very different animal to turf. Um, and a mile and a half on dirt does take some seasoning. Now, do I think that the American Triple Crown 
is, you know, I was one of the people when everyone said, oh, it's impossible to do anymore, no rules will ever do it. You know, there's a reason why it's the triple crown. It's incredibly difficult to do, but it is doable. We've seen it done. Um, and, and so that was a vindication of those comments on that. Um, how do I envisage it? This year is the first leg of the, of the, of the um, American Triple Crown. Look, I personally think that um, spreading the races out a little bit wouldn't have been the worst, isn't the worst thing in the world anyway. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in change is, is normally for the good. Um, it, you know, everyone undenied when they moved uh, the two-year-old races to Newmarket and had Champions Day at Ascot, and and actually it's been an s- unbelievable success. But this is a one-off. Let's let's not get let's not um, you know let's not think that this is going to be something that's going to happen going forward. Um, next year, God willing, we will resume a normal American Triple Crown, um, and and you know to have a. In terms of distance, to have a receding triple crown to start at a mile and a half, then go to a mile and a quarter, and then go to a mile and three sixteenths, you know, that just simply doesn't make sense. So, um, you know, it, it's going to be a triple crown with an asterisk next to it, um, especially if a horse wins all three legs. That was exactly my thoughts. How would that feel as a trainer, as an owner, owner if your horse does win all the three legs? Will he forever be remembered as the one that won? A, a different, I wouldn't say easier, but as you mentioned, the races are spaced differently now. They start off on the 20th of June with the Belmont, then the Kentucky Derby, September 5th, and Preakness Stakes in October 3rd. Do you think it's easier now it's later in the year and the races are spaced out more? Well, it's not going to favor the more precocious horses, that's for sure. Um, a lot of the, the horses, you know, it, it, to me, it's more of a, it's almost a five leg that we're going to look at with the Haskell and the Travers in between as well. Um, and and do I think that it'll be marked with an asterisk? Yes. Do I think that's a terrible thing? If I train the winner of all three legs, then you wouldn't hear me complaining too much. Um, and I definitely wouldn't be putting uh, putting putting any, you know, it's, it's, it, it is different, but everything in the world is different right now. Um, and we have to understand that and embrace it and realize that that's just the way it is this year um you know i think it is probably easier having the if you decide to target the three traditional races and not run in the haskell or the travers i think that probably you are going to um you know you're going to find it a lot easier than running in three races in seven weeks than you get june to as you said to september to october um, to to make sure that your horse is in absolute peak physical condition, but the Belmont Stakes is typically um, a very very tough third leg of the Triple Crown. It's the biggest racetrack, the deepest surface, and the longest distance. And coming back on the back of two classic runs, so yes, it's going to be different. But um, you know, I think we'll see a, a greater strength and depth in these races um, because of it, because it's in the second half of the year. And people have got time to pick their spots and get ready. Um, you know, I think you'll probably see a, a, a really, really good depth of horses in these races. It's an unconventional year as it is, but let's 
talk about something more traditional, the Saratoga race meet. It's still scheduled for July 16. The New York Racing Association is still planning on going there, uh, running without spectators, though, a 40-day meet. Are you happy with the proposed plan or would you have preferred to stay on Long Island in relation to all the present circumstances? We are pawns in a game of chess. Um, and if the game of chess is taken to Saratoga, us pawns must go. Um, personally, I think it's a ridiculous move. Um, I think that Aqueduct Racetrack is sitting there unused with exactly the same dimensions as Saratoga. You wouldn't have to change any of the d- distances of any of the races. You've got two pristine, brand-new turf tracks, and it means we don't have to move. It's very, very expensive to go to Saratoga for trainers, and I personally will not be taking a string this summer. I'm going to send a handful of horses, um, and the remainder of my horses will stay at Belmont and train, and a large number of other trainers are going to be doing the same thing. It's um, a very, very difficult set of circumstances because Naira insists that the wagering handle generated by Saratoga is so significant that it um, warrants us all going up there um, as obviously the wagering handle is going to be the main contributor to the purse structure. And in the words of David O'Rourke, if we don't go to Saratoga, we will be looking at draconian cuts in the fall to our purse structure. So I understand both sides of the argument from a personal perspective. I would much rather not be going this year. I love Saratoga. I love everything it stands for. Um, but this year, to me, it is just the wrong year to go. Um, but I also understand that we need to we need to keep this going. Um, so you know, you have options on both sides of the of the fence, and you just got to try and um, try and understand where where the New York Racing Association are coming from. And and we will be running there, but we'll be running the horses out of Belmont. You said you're just going to send a few horses. I was just going to ask, does that mean you are just going to send them over and they might be in another trainer's barn for a couple of days or are you just going to fan them up no, from we'll, Belmont? We'll take, some, we'll take some stalls there um, and I'll probably take a skeleton staff with me and we'll um, we'll just do it that way and we'll ship horses up, we'll run them, uh, we'll send them back down and, and it, that'll afford me, you know, there's, there's not going to be any owners, there's not going to be any fans Um so that and there are no sales, so that eliminates that side of things, um, and it means that we, you know, I can spend enough time on Long Island with the main division of horses, um, and then, as and when we're racing, I will be in Saratoga. Will it still feel like Saratoga, or do you think it's going to be eerie in a way? It's going to be. It's going to, be, it's going to feel very, very different this year, no doubt. I mean, that is a race course that I am used to walking in. Um, I've always said that walking your first horse into the paddock in Saratoga for each meet, it it feels like. It it genuinely feels like a gladiators arena because you walk up with your horse the whole way through the crowd, and they're five deep either side of the fence for three-eighths of a mile all the way up the back of the grandstand and then you get into the paddock uh, which is steeped in so much history and and every year I walk that walk with my first runner just to get a sense of where we are and what we're going to try and accomplish during the meet there and it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up so to have it empty will be extremely strange Um, you know the owner groups in the mornings the large gatherings of people to watch turf works um 
you know, there's a there's an awful lot of a sense of, a real sense of occasion to Saratoga every single day. Um, the crowds on Wednesdays and Thursdays are still bigger than we experience on a huge amount of race courses across America on a, on a Saturday afternoon. So, you know, it is going to be very strange. It's going to be very strange indeed. Um, and obviously with Maggie doing what she does for a living, she's going to be just broadcasting to a television audience, not to people who are, you know, huge, huge fans of hers because they just won't be allowed in. Yeah, it's not going to be the same. And I have to agree with you that the crowds really do make Saratoga. Last year was only my first year, but I was so pleasantly surprised, especially by the picnic area, how people are running in in the mornings to get that perfect table and they spend their day there. And they do that every day for like nearly half of the meet. Some people are just there. That's their, you know, that's their summer spending. That's their holiday. So it definitely won't feel the same. And I fell in love even just last year. So I understand what you mean walking in, how special it is. And I don't want to keep you for too long, but I do want to get your opinion on what's currently playing out. And I know that there aren't many facts yet, but what was your initial hunch when you saw the news about a possible uh, drug violation of charlatan in the first division of the Grade 1 Arkansas Derby at Oakland Park. Of course, we have no confirmation whatsoever. It is unfortunate that possibly this shouldn't have come out if now the split sample turns out to, to be testing negative for any banned substances. But what was your first thought? Because I thought, oh, God, no, we can't have something else again you know, happening to us as an industry and we're really trying to do our best to clean it up as much as we can. Yes, but we need to do better. And that's my thought on it. Um, I mean, commenting on the specific case of what happened in Arkansas, it, 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 that, I'm not going to say anything about that, that we haven't had a split sample back. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think the Arkansas Racing Commission have behaved themselves correctly on that in, in that set of circumstances, but we have to do better. We have to gather around and realize that as an industry, we are living a fractured and um, warring factions are no longer going to be acceptable in our game. And, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation has shown that our testing procedures uh, simply aren't up to scratch. Um, and in my opinion, we need to modernize our industry. Um, it is no longer, you know, there, there is no place any longer to be, to be governed by um, by by the, the I don't want to say the old school, but at the end of the day, we need government regulation. We're talking about elite athletics with massive betting pools, um, and yet it's state-governed, and, and that's, to me, um, totally draconian. And, and you know, we're, we're looking at a huge loss of faith and, and belief in the American industry because we see these medication positives being swept under the carpet the whole time or uh, nominal fines and state suspensions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at the end of the day, I think if you're caught cheating and drugging your horses, then you need to serve a serious suspension um, and not be allowed back into the game. Are there any initiatives at present that you do think are increasing the transparency of our sport and really sort of helping us move into the right direction? Yeah, I think that the the Horse Racing Integrity Act that's in Washington at the moment is is a big step in the right direction. Uh, I think the work that the Grayson Jockey Club do is enormously beneficial. Um, 
And I think the fact that people are willing now to get behind the idea of, of, of um, you know, a centralized stewards um, system and medication policy and reform and the fact that we are changing these is is uh, is huge. I mean, I remember when I first worked in America, the medication policy was a, a lot more lenient than it is now. I definitely agree with you there. And to just sort of end this quite serious conversation, I'm not going to label it any differently, but that's what I want. I wanted to hear your opinion on topics that are unfortunately we're facing every day, if it's either from outside the industry or within the industry. What are your goals or hopes that you'd still have for 2020? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's something that every year I sit down and I try and work out what are achievable goals for the year ahead. And they've been absolutely pulverized. Um, You know, I've never been a a strike rate trainer. Um, I'm not a huge believer in in that. I think that you you know you jeopardise the development of horses by um, getting them ready to win first time out and keeping your win percentage up and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And we don't have the numbers of horses to try and compete in that twenty percent bracket in the state of New York. But I did realise that that was something that we needed to try and rectify, and we got off to a very good start this year. You know, a lot of our horses ran very well. Um, and it was something that I really wanted to make a sincere effort was just to try and improve that a little bit more and try and be um you know a little bit more realistic with some of my owners and and say look this is where you know if you want to be involved and you want me to train your your horses then this is the, this is where we can win or and and or have a real good shot at winning um so we started the year on that front obviously every year you want to try and better the numbers from the year before but certainly it's something that ever, ever since i won my first stake i've always felt that you know, it's important to win stake races as well. So it was nice to win a stake race early in the year. Uh, felt that we probably have missed out on a couple of really legitimate chances to win a couple more since then through through cancellations of racing. Um, and you're always looking for a big horse. Um, and, and, you know, when you have the numbers of horses that we have, which is, tends to be hover around the 30, we're very lucky to have Have You Gone Away and then two years later, um, Carrot came along um, to win our second grade one. and and it, But the year in between was a very bleak time because we just had the retiring of our first grade one winner and we didn't appear to have a star in the barn. And, you know, you're, you're just always hoping that, there's, that one of them is going to turn out to be a real, real good horse. Well, it's going to be, as you mentioned, it's going to be really, really competitive. So... I dare say it's a tricky one. Even just looking at now Churchill Downs resuming the the competitiveness of the fields, the size of the fields, and everyone's just throwing everything at it because everyone's there and all the big names are there. And it's definitely nothing's going to be given to you easy on that front. So I expect Belmont to be similar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there's, there's two ways of looking at this. The first one is that we've all missed out on an enormous amount of opportunity to, to race our horses. The other one is that... You know, there's really no excuse for trainers not to have their entire string in incredibly good physical shape right now. We've had eight weeks to make sure that any niggles and bumps and bruises that needed ironing out have been ironed out so that these horses are all ready to go in the entry box. Yeah, well, I sure do hope 
that you can continue on the same foot that you started the year with and that you're still able to achieve some of what you set out to do in terms of your goals. And Tom, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and I'm hoping to join you guys up in New York anytime soon. But uh, as you can imagine, it's been tricky. Well, we're hoping to see you back on the television. You've made a great start down there in Maryland, and we want to see you guys back racing, and we want to see you and Stan and the team uh, back on our TV screens as soon as possible. And thank you very much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. You and me both, Tom. You and me both. Fingers crossed this will be the week that my current home track, the beautiful Laurel Park, finally returns to action. I struggle to express the frustration for everyone involved, how we are anxiously awaiting to get going. Thanks again to my two guests who have made my life a lot easier by being informative and opinionated and are both very strong storytellers. And thank you for joining me this week. Now let's keep kicking. And I have the entire team at the In The Money Media Network to thank for that. I'm trying to get in with the cool guys by practicing my tournament playing skills, but I haven't been crowned a champion just yet. I guess I'll um, keep on trying, right? Do play along again this Friday in this week's one and only Handicapping Hour with Peter Thomas Fornatel, Jonathan Kinchin and Matt Bernier. Guess that's it. Bye-bye, everyone. Oh, and I do actually know who my guest for next week will be. I already have her locked in. Hint, she started as an on-air analyst at the same track I'm currently at and forged her way as quite the pioneer female in the horse racing broadcasting industry. She also widened her scope to include other sports such as college football and college basketball. Guess who? See you next week.